Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Barton Kane offers a huge variety of GSP Kane. Leave the Kane processing to them. Use coupon code Double Read Dish Rocks My World for free shipping on your next Barton Kane order. www.bartonkane.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. We're going to do kind of a COVID-themed dish, but it may be our last or among our last. I hope so. I hope with every fiber of my being. Well, you are fully vaccinated at this point. Yes. And I did not tell you this, but I got my appointment for my first shot on Saturday. Stop it. That's amazing. Yes. Washington has kind of loosened things up and taken a more liberal definition that includes those who work with K through 12. And of course, Chris and I both teach private lessons. So we were able to make an appointment in good standing without cutting the line. So yeah, I'm super excited. But of course, you know, different uh, timelines for different people. I've been incredibly frustrated watching everyone get their shot. And so I know there are people listening going, good for you. Like, (laughs) (laughs) that was very frustrating for me. Um, But we must, you know, abide by these protocol until, you know, everyone has had the opportunity and access. And that includes our performances. And so we thought if for nothing other than a time capsule to look back <laughs> double regeneration time capsule <laughs> like maybe our grand students will want to know what it was like when i was your age i had to wear a mask and a bell cover and i had to walk to school in the snow uphill both ways <laughs> that's what we'll be Yes, that's what we'll tell our grand students when they're complaining about their read or something. We'll be like, oh, have you ever learned to make reads over Zoom? (laughs) And they'll think of Zoom like how our students now think of like cassettes or records. (laughs) People will like use Zoom ironically. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And we'll all be like riding hoverboards to Mars. hope so i really the day somebody like wears an ironic zoom t-shirt is a good day for me (laughs) um so we thought we would talk about what has performing looked like 
in the pandemic for us, just kind of literally. I mean, neither of us had to use a bassoon bag, but bless those of you who did. <laughs> I look at that and I'm just like, what is or happening like, there? Have you seen those like clear plastic cages for mm -hmm. students? <laughs> like individual tents to play in. Yeah, it's like the Marcel yeah. Marceau Orchestra. <laughs> oh, I wish that our listeners could see us both doing the hand thing. <laughs> uh, but so this, this has been on my mind because I recently had to do my first faculty recital at WSU. I'm trying Ooh. to get tenure. I have no time to waste. You don't take the first year off. No. But I had to like figure out how to give a recital in this thing. And we are not like other schools where we are doing really anything face to face. It has been all virtual all year. So they let us in the hall and especially Chris and I did several pieces for bassoon and marimba and we're in a living pod. So that was like not an issue, just pre-record. And then I did a couple of unaccompanied laments, the first by Bryn Solomon, um, who is a composer who actually wrote the piece for Piccolo. And I said, will you make a bassoon version? And the composer was agreeable and, and that was fantastic. And then also the John Steinmetz uh, new laments that he wrote to be played in isolation. And so I was like, oh, I'll record these at home. I'll lean in, it'll be cool. Okay, so you go to recital, it's a live performance. That doesn't mean it's like, okay, to bomb. But it's a live performance. We're yeah. all in the moment. There's a forgiveness. There's um, a different mindset. Yeah, like you bring all your stuff with you. The audience brings all their stuff with them. You're We're all in just... this moment together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you're in the recording studio, that's a completely different mindset. We're trying yeah. to document, you know, what is my exact concept of yeah. the piece? And I am approaching this in a way that gives me multiple chances to communicate my exact ideas exactly how I mean them. And so there are different expectations and experiences with those types of quote unquote performances. And this is such a middle ground between the two because ain't nobody doing 25 takes of a whole seven minute unaccompanied piece. You get two maximum. Yeah, honestly, like yeah. there were some that it was just like we did, but then it's pre-recorded and so you're listening to it before the audience does and it's like oh my god that's one thing blah 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 that if i walked off stage i'd be like that was pretty darn good yeah. i'm happy with that yeah and so that is what the it's gotten in my mind the covid performing straddling the line between recording and live performance and so that that was an experience but you know, that was like not the funnest, but what was the funnest was eating ice cream while watching myself play a recital. For real. So um, I guess, you know, you take the good with the bad. <laughs> the bitter with the sweet. I wonder if this like straddling the two worlds of recording and live performance has affected like a lot of people's programming choices. Mm. It should have impacted mine. <laughs> Maybe gone a little more conservative with the programming and done things that you've done before and, you know. Yeah, I was more like, oh, 
especially for some of the pieces with Chris and I, we were like, oh, you know, we won't be performing for a while. So this is a chance to dig in and learn some of these harder pieces and start to tackle some of these harder pieces. And so we were like, oh my gosh. But <laughs> what has performing looked like for you during this pandemic? Because your situation is very different than mine. Yeah, I have been slowly jumping back into orchestra gigs and this past weekend, I did a chamber music rehearsal retreat for a recording that we're planning for the summer. Um, and it has been distancing, masks, like playing masks, bell covers. I have to say the mask, once I got used to it, was not that, I mean, it was inconvenient and it was too hot and annoying, but it wasn't like, I got used to that, but, like, the bell cover is such a problem. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. It just put my tuning in such a weird place. Mm. It was really horrendous. But when you wear a mask, that conveniently covers up ugly double read embouchure face. That is true. Although... <laughs> That has not affected the um, videographer's perspectives because when this orchestra performance was like live streamed, my parents were watching and they're like, yeah, honey, we, you were too far away from the mic. We couldn't really hear you. And you know, the, the camera didn't really sit on you at all. <laughs> yeah, they're trained well. <laughs> They're like, we saw a lot of the principal flute. I was like, yeah. Yeah, they always look good. What else is new? <laughs> but like playing, uh, playing in an orchestra, it was really hard because you're so far away from everyone. Mm. I mean, I gigged with Baton Rouge a couple of times and, you know, the winds and brass are up in the choir loft of this giant church and the strings and the conductor are down like on the main level <laughs> and you're in a church so it's got major <laughs> echo and delay yeah there was a lot of echo and <laughs> so you're easily a hundred feet from the conductor and so at a certain point you're like yeah we're late we're late we're gonna be late it's just late <laughs> like trying to negotiate playing with the rest of your section across the choir loft and with the strings and the conductor was like all right we're just all, we're just late it we don't have these skills I mean I guess <laughs> we were in marching band you kind of got some of the although you know what this is bringing back memories when I was at the University of Iowa the tail end of me being at Iowa was the very start of Andrew Parker UT Austin Andrew Parker's uh -huh. career and he coached our grad student quintet and I remember there was one coaching, he had us turn. So instead of facing each other, we had our backs to each other in the different corners on the perimeter of the room to get us to play together kind of more intuitively with play with our ears and not our eyes essentially. And I'm like, that was good pre COVID training. Like For little real. did we know <laughs> what an applicable skill. <laughs> But yeah, in this, in this quintet rehearsal retreat, we rehearsed at a school.
school. And so we had to follow school protocol. So it was, you know, distance and mask and bell cover. And we could only play for 30 minutes at a time in a space. So we would, we would play 30 minutes and then go to another room and play 30 minutes and then come back to the first room, (laughs) which honestly was a blessing in disguise because my face lasted the entire weekend. I was going to say that would be great for endurance. Like chamber music retreat equals my teeth are going through my face. But yeah, yeah. But this would help avoid that. Yeah, it was kind of cool in that in that regard. And then, of course, you're just like dripping with sweat and your face is itchy and all that stuff. But (laughs) well, if you're listening to this in in 2060, listening <laughs> to our tales of COVID playing, just be glad for your hoverboards and that you're living on Mars. And what do you think oboes and bassoons will look like in 2060? Do you think we'll finally have plastic reeds that work? We have plastic reeds that work. Stop bragging! <laughs> Founded by Logan Esterling, Reed Design is pushing the boundaries of oboe and English horn reed making. They take the knowledge they've collected from hundreds of reeds and, with the power of machine learning, derive patterns and trends that accurately predict the characteristics of finished reeds while early in the sorting process. The result is quality reeds with characteristics you can count on. Using their products will save you valuable time and let you get back to what you love, making music. Visit www.reeddesign.io to learn more. That's R-E-E-D-E-S-I-G-N dot I-O. Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. We are so excited to welcome to Double Reed Dish, Lori Wyke, Principal Bassoon of the Utah Symphony. Welcome, Lori, to Double Reed Dish. Hello. Thanks for having me. We always love to start by asking our guests how they came to play their instrument. So could you tell us how you were first introduced to the bassoon? Yes, actually, um, I... uh was going into junior high starting seventh grade and I met with the band directors uh, the summer before where they had us buzz on mouthpieces. They talked to us, they had us do an aptitude test, you know, uh, different, different things. And um, eventually at the end, uh, I remember the, uh, the high school band director who was there, he said, how about the bassoon? We need a bassoon player. And I said, sure, what's a bassoon? Uh, <laughs> I had no idea. Um, so I, yeah, I, and I, I was really lucky. Well, not in the instrument that they gave me. Um, it, it was, well, it wasn't very pretty, so I wouldn't even call it lamp worthy, but, um, <laughs> but they, they put me in contact with, um, a wonderful woman, uh, Robbie Dobson, who was a, a string orchestra teacher and one of the schools in the county I grew up in and a very, very fine bassoonist who started me from day one. You know, I had private lessons from day one and it was, was very helpful. 
So that's how it started. And how, at, at what point along your journey did you begin to think, I think I want to pursue this as a career? And how did you go about um, embarking on your professional path and professional training? You know, I think I played the bassoon about two weeks and I announced that, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, I really liked it. I mean, it was, you know, absurd and impulsive, um, but I, I followed through. So, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I loved it instantly. Um, and I, I studied uh, for two years uh, with Robbie and she ended up moving, uh, I moved up to Virginia. And so I, at that time I had some some old back issues of the instrumentalist uh, from my, my band directors. And um, there was an, an advertisement from, from Mark Popkin advertising the Glickman Popkin bassoon camp and Mark Popkin's bassoon camp by the sea. And, you know, I said, oh, he, he's in North Carolina. So there's an address. So I wrote, I wrote a letter and it's, it's kind of funny. I still, I found the letter, my mother sent it to me where I introduced myself to Mark Popkin and, and asked him if he would, would consider taking me on as a private student. I, I told him I could play up to the real, real high D. In fact, in the letter, <laughs> it was pretty precious. Um, That's adorable. Yeah, it was cute. Um, and he, wonderful, wonderful man. And uh, so I began studying with him uh, just before I started the ninth grade. And just, you know, he, he was so phenomenal. I would, I would drive to, well, I didn't drive, my, my father would drive me two and a half hours up for lessons with him and he would say come, come back in about an hour and so my, my dad would go do do whatever and he'd come back in an hour and you know we were just getting started so these these lessons would last three four hours I mean oh, wow. he was such a, a generous kind brilliant brilliant man and um you know I I just I learned so much so much from him and uh you know we we started with read making we started with you know it's like oh well, let's hear your single tugging. Okay, good, good. That's very good. All right, let's start double tugging right now. You know, I mean, it was just, I was like, oh, okay, great. So it was, I was so lucky to, to have these wonderful teachers very early on. And um, it, it was very, very helpful, helpful for me. And uh, so I, I continued in public schools uh, for several more years. And then I, I was thrilled my senior year of high school, I got to go to um, North Carolina School of the Arts. They've changed the name now, University of North Carolina School of the Arts it is now. Uh, and so then I was able to study, uh, you know, with, with Popkin every week, you know, not just a lesson, but a, a weekly studio class, read class, um, everything. And um, it was just incredible, the, the intensity of the study and uh, it shaped me so much as a player. And so that, that was my, my early, um, training there. And then uh, I ended up going to Eastman for college where I studied with the wonderful John Hunt and, uh, you know, just being in a, a studio with so many uh, fantastic players and, uh, you know, a fantastic school. And so, so that, that was the, the initial path. What happened after that? How did you find your way to the Utah Symphony? pretty circuitous path. Um, so uh, I, I was very fortunate as an undergraduate, I won a one-year position playing with the Louisville Orchestra. Wow. And um, it was, um, I played contrabassoon and uh, basically utility bassoon. Uh, in the summer, I played second bassoon with them. 
but it was kind of a trial by fire for, for contrabassoonists. I didn't have a great deal of experience with it, but we could get around the instrument. But I, I learned very quickly um, in that year. And, uh, uh, but I ended up playing much more bassoon uh, than contrabassoon in the course of that year. And, you know, this was a great experience working with Matthew Carr, who uh, st still is principal bassoon there, I believe. Nope. No, I believe that's different now. But um, anyway, Matthew Carr was principal bassoon in Louisville and just phenomenal person and player. And um, it, it, was a, it was a great year for me. Um, at the same time I had been uh, back at school, I, I was it's not double majoring. It was a little complicated uh, with that, but I, had, I got two minors through the University of Rochester, uh, film studies and comparative literature. So I had you know, multiple interests going on. And when I returned to Eastman, um, I ended up applying for a fifth year uh, through the University of Rochester, a Take Five Scholars program, which uh, uh, basically enabled me to have, I don't know, more credits, that, uh, enough credits for many, many minors actually. Uh, but so I got, I got a free fifth year of, of academic study at the University of Rochester uh, in a self-designed program called critical theory and the interpretation of cultural texts. And so I had, you know, these academic interests uh, that were kind of working, uh, going along in parallel with my, you know, intense musical training and, and my love of music. And so I wasn't quite sure where I wanted to go with that. Um, so after I finished up in Louisville, the one year, I returned to finish my undergraduate degree and it started off kind of as a lark, uh, but I, I, I decided, well, maybe, maybe I'll apply to graduate programs in, you know, in, in an academic field. Uh, anyway, long story short, I ended up going to uh, University of California at Irvine for uh, graduate work, and I got a master's degree in comparative literature. Uh, technically, I was in a, a PhD program, and I I stopped after I got the master's degree, so PhD dropout. Uh, but uh, <laughs> um, I, I realized in the course in the course of my my graduate studies that I I missed playing full time. I still played. I, I played with a wonderful quintet out in Southern California, and um, played a lot with the kind of the Inland Empire Orchestra, San Bernardino Redlands Riverside, uh, while I was there uh, subbing and. Um, but uh, I, I realized, oh, I really, I really do want to play the bassoon as, as my main, my main focus. Um, it was just, you know, I was young, trying to figure out what, what I wanted to have be my, my career and what I, what I wanted to have be more my, my side interest at the time. Uh, but it was, um, I, I certainly don't regret it. I learned so much uh, in that program. I, I got to study with. Uh, the philosopher Jacques Derrida, he was on faculty in the complet department and um, just <sighs> phenomenal, uh, incredible experience, even though at the time I realized, oh, I really wanna be playing the bassoon. So I, um, I ended up getting into New World Symphony uh, right after I finished the master's degree component uh, at Irvine. And so I moved to Miami Beach and uh, New World of course is, you know, this um, inc incredible, incredible I don't know what you would call it, proving ground. Uh, it's just, it's a wonderful experience. Um, and it's very intense. There's, you know, a great deal of focus on winning auditions. You know, there's an incredible kind of orchestral placement rate uh, 
uh, from New World. And it, you know, it's just an environment where everyone around you is preparing for auditions, is doing mock auditions, is taking auditions. And so you're, you're living and breathing it. And it's that kind of intensity, I think, is almost necessary for for winning an audition given how, how competitive uh, they are. So uh, out of, you know, I took many auditions and then I ended up getting um, a trial period with Utah. I had a two week trial. Uh, there were six of us given trial periods and then I, uh, I won the job. And I've been here now, let's see, 15, 15 years. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. When a lot of us look at our like musical journey and our training, so much of the emphasis is placed on like the intensity and um, a hyper focus, perhaps to the exclusion of other things. I've thought many times I wish I could go back and do my gen eds that I resented as being a waste <laughs> of time. There, there's things I know I didn't invest in learning. I was just kind of like, notches in the belt, you know, um, to the bassoon. And, and now that I'm older, I wish I hadn't done that. Um, but we're kind of given this message of like, um, you know, go, go, go now, 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 every minute you're not practicing someone else's and, um, this kind of scarcity mindset mm -hmm. and you allowed and, and made room for other things in your life and to, learn and grow in ways that were not just musical. And I'd love to kind of hear you talk about how that impacted or clarified your path, if you were able to avoid burnout or fatigue, or if you feel like it, it you know, improved your audition and your perspective to have this different, to not buy into the scarcity mindset. That's a great question. Um, you know, I, what I have seen uh, among many, many musicians I know is that, you know, we, we become kind of funneled into this career early on and we're, we're very good, we're, we're good at it, we see success and it is a very intense trajectory. And I think that a lot of people don't have that opportunity to step back and say, I'm good at this, this is what I know how to do, but is this what I want to do? Mm -hmm. um, and for me, I, I at one point said, I don't think I want to do this. I'm going to stop this. You know, I'm going to I'm going to turn my turn to turn to something else and see if this is what I want to do as a as a career focus. And ultimately, I decided, oh, I, I really miss performing. You know, I this it's more important to me than than I I thought. Um, but it was I felt like I made the conscious choice. I had you know I had an early taste of what orchestral life is like the 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 positives and the and the negatives. Um, uh, and, you know, so it was, I was going in uh, eyes wide open uh, when I made the decision, okay, this is what I want to do for a career. Um, knowing that I had this point where I made a conscious choice that I know what this is about. I could have done something else, but I'm going to do this. Does that prevent burnout, fatigue, exhaustion? Maybe to some extent, uh, not always, but um, I made the choice versus just kind of being caught up in a wave, um, if that makes any sense. Did you feel like when you made the choice to return back to taking auditions, like New World Symphony, I don't need to tell you, it's a very competitive opportunity. 
Um, so did you experience like, um, feeling like you'd lost time or when your goals were clarified, was it easy for you to step back into preparing for what you were hoping to achieve? Uh, I would say a little bit of both. I think to some degree it was, uh, the hyper-focus I had, you know, as a teenager, as a 19-year-old, when I first started taking auditions, uh, I mean, I did quite well, 1920, 21, um, that to some extent, my, my lack of knowledge may have been a boon for me in auditions. Um, whereas I grew as a person, I grew as a player, I grew as a musician, uh, you know, auditions are, are, are an unusual animal. <laughs> Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I think if I had continued taking just a lot of auditions very, very early on, you know, in my, my late teens, uh, very early twenties, um, they may have been a little easier for me. When I took auditions from New World, uh, sometimes I would not make it past the prelims. Sometimes I would make it to semis. Sometimes I would make it to finals. Sometimes I'd runner up, you know, I mean, it's just trial, you know, it's, um, it, I mean, you start to get into a zone where at a certain point you're you're performing very well at each audition, although you, you can never, of course, control what a, what a committee is listening for or what they happen to, to want. I don't think taking the time off made me better at auditioning. Um, I think it made me a better musician, put it like that. Mm-hmm. So part of your um, continued interest outside of the bassoon is a mastery of the palindrome. Can you tell us more about this and some of the amazing opportunities that you have had? Sure, yes. I um, have a a kind of side obsession with writing palindromes and I've had that for, I don't know, about 10 years now. Um, I've always been, you know, very fascinated with with language, you know, just from my my background in in comparative literature and and critical theory and all of that. but I, I started writing palindromes uh, uh, probably about 10 years ago. And I, I, I read, I, I was aware of palindromes. I, I thought they were interesting. Um, but I encountered uh, uh, online this magazine called The Palindromist. And um, it had a forum where people would would write their own palindromes. And I said, wow, I had never thought about writing palindromes. I just thought of palindromes as being kind of an object. And I thought, hmm, I wonder if I could write a palindrome. And so I started, I came up, I wrote, I wrote a palindrome. I submitted it to the forum and the the um, editor of the, the magazine, Mark Saltbite, uh, was very encouraging and I was like, that's great, you know, and then, you know, just kind of kept encouraging me to write more. And uh, uh, he's now a, a friend of mine and, um, Anyway, I, I slowly got into this this palindrome community, which I should say um, is extremely a very very small community. I mean, we think uh, the bassoon community, the, the double re community, is small, but I mean, we're talking micro. You know, it's there aren't that many people who who, who do this um, at least obsessively. Uh, and at the same time, uh, something was happening. Uh, Will Shorts, um, puzzle master. Uh, uh, was hosting the the first World Palindrome Championship. And I read about this and I thought it was hilarious. I was like, oh, I'm going to design a bracket, like, you know, March Madness, but for palindromists. And, <laughs> you know, and so I'm reading about this and 
I was like, this is just, this is crazy. What is it? How, how do you have competitive palindroming, you know? And so I, I followed the whole story. I thought it was fascinating. I said, I want to do this. And so I started writing more palindromes. There's a, a yearly um, uh, palindrome kind of best of celebration called the Simmies, like the Emmys, but S-Y-M-M-Y-S. Um, <laughs> and so I started you know, submitting palindromes to this and I started to get to know uh uh, the people in the, well, the guys in the palindrome community, and uh, we're on email lists together. And um, anyway, uh, Will then decided he would have a second uh, World Palindrome Championship. And I, uh, this, so I ended up participating in this. This was in 2017. And what was really kind of fun about this is we had some documentary film filmmakers who had decided they wanted to make a film about the, the World Palindrome Championship. And so they filmed uh, not only the, the championship, but they came to visit the, the competitors, um, you know, in, in our homes. So uh, it was, I had a good time taking the filmmakers uh, around to see some of the sites of, of Utah. Um, and they got to uh, film a brief clip of me in the orchestra playing, playing Beethoven for, there's, you know, there's certain fair use uh, agreements and things, but, um, so I was like, okay, I had to set them up with the exact timing. Like, this is the fourth moment you've, you've got to, you know, get, get this and, um, uh, you know, talk about, uh, pressure knowing it's going to be in a, in a film. <laughs> <laughs> it's nerve wracking enough. And then <laughs> like, all right, got to nail it. Um, so, yeah, there's a little brief clip, uh, uh, of me in the film doing that. And then uh, with me working with um, one of my fabulous students uh, at the time, Amanda Hales, um, we did the Bach Crab Cannon together. We played that, which was a lot of fun talking about musical palindromes. And um, and then because I was playing Beethoven for that week, um, uh, I had her playing it backwards, you know, talking about practicing with variations, things like that. Anyway, um, so I, I ended up going to this this World Palindrome Championship, and I I, I was runner up uh, by I lost by three tenths of a point. Um, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the winner, uh, Martin Clear, he is uh, an uh, he's Australian and a terrific guy and brilliant, brilliant palindromist. He's been writing palindromes uh, far longer than I have, and a very deserving winner. But um, yeah, three tenths of a point. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> it was a lot of fun because it's it's the kind of thing I, uh, you know, my experience in taking auditions, you know, is that th the best part was, uh, you know, hanging out with all my bassoon friends, you know, after after the after it was over, um, because it's I mean, yeah, sure there's a there's a it's competitive, but I think that at least in much of the bassoon community, that it's um, a kind of friendly mindset, you know, and it's, it's the same sort of thing in the, this palindrome community where pal writing palindromes is a very solitary activity, you know, it takes time and the idea that you're doing it in, in a timed fashion with extra constraints thrown on, I mean, is just, is kind of crazy. So we're, we're all doing something that is, you know, inherently not really competitive, but, um, and we're having fun with it. And, uh, it was, it was just, it was a great experience and it was very odd because I was trying to prepare for this palindrome competition and all, you know, all I knew how to prepare for were bassoon auditions. And so kind of 
trying to take my audition mindset and, and apply it to palindromes was kind of an interesting, uh, interesting thing for me. So I want to know uh, how you connected those two in applied practical terms. And I also want to know if you would share a palindrome with us. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. So uh, as I was preparing, I, um, uh, I, I thought I was trying to anticipate the different constraints that Will Shorts might ask us to do. I, I knew that he, in the, in the first palindrome championship, he had certain constraints, um, you know, write a palindrome that uses a Y and an X perhaps, or a, a Y and a Z, a Z and a W, I can't remember exactly, but it was, you, you, you threw an additional constraint into the mix. And so I started trying to anticipate things that could potentially be asked. Um, and one of my, I remember this because I, I took a, you know, a, a Rocky style picture of myself pretending to do a one-armed push-up while studying um, uh, on a sheet of paper, you know, uh, words with Q without U. Because if you, if you use Q in a palindrome, you, you, you can't really use Q-U. Uh, it's what's well, possible. But anyway, I actually predicted one of the constraints that was asked in, in the first night of the competition. Um, which was, you know, write a palindrome using Q without a U. Um, so I had this list of all the Q words that did not have U in them. And so, and then I did this kind of trick photography image of myself, you know, with the, the, the red, red bandana, <laughs> Rocky style. And what was funny is that they didn't know it was a trick photograph. My, uh, my palindrome friends, they thought I could really do one-armed push-ups, which is hilarious. So... <laughs> So uh, anyway, uh, yeah, it, was, it was kind of fun. But um, so uh, uh, one of my, my palindromes, okay, I'll, I'll give you a, a couple. I have to, you know, they're very visual. So it's, it's hard to, um, you have to kind of see them in the, in the film. The, 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 the filmmakers did such a wonderful job with animations and, and showing uh, how it works. Sure. Anyway, this is a short one I wrote. Um, Edit never even one disaster, frets aside, no, never eventide. That's a short one. And then I wrote one um, since the uh, solstice is coming up. This one is called Midwinter. Crane, dusk, radar of tilt, light, raw, swarth, guilt, lit for a dark, sudden arc. Um, and I've, I've done all kinds of fun things. I like to combine, uh, I like to make palindrome limericks, call them polymerics. Um, they're very difficult to do uh, with the with the rhyme scheme and the and the and the syllable scheme uh, combined with, with palindromes. So I don't know that I've ever written any that I think are really great palindromes, but it's a kind of a fun mental exercise to do. That's great. It's so po I wasn't expecting it to be so poetic. Um, yeah, you know, it's a. Uh, um, that's kind of a, one of our categories in our year, our yearly celebration of palindromes, the semis is palindrome poetry. So whether it's, you know, from the, the absurd, the, the polymerics to, you know, uh, I have a, a friend, Anthony, Anthony Etheren, very, very brilliant uh, poet and palindromist in uh, Shropshire, England, um, who writes palindrome sonnets. He, I mean, he writes, wow. writes everything. And so I, Kind of taking a cue from Anthony, I started exploring more poetic forms, written a lot of palindrome haiku, for example. Um, so, yeah. That's fantastic. 
so and that but you know a lot of palindromes are very silly those were you know not not necessarily silly palindromes those <laughs> happen to be the ones that i i really like but but i also uh um i also like to write the 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 fun silly absurd palindrome sometimes they uh, combining with political commentary which uh, adds extra fun I love the the rocky connection and so many times you know musical preparation is compared to athletic preparation and you spoke a lot about anticipating what the person evaluating is going to want and is there any overlap in this um, preparation or um, anticipation in terms of auditioning and the success you found in that preparation? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I would say you never want to try to, you know, anticipate what a, what a committee is, is listening for. I mean, you, you just have to go in and you have to play like you play and, and play in a way that is convincing and makes sense to you. And if they like it, great. And if they don't like it, okay. But to a certain extent, we spent all this time training and doing mock auditions. So of course we're anticipating what is to be expected. You know, I mean, you can say that, well, there's no wrong way of playing blah, 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 but um, there are certainly ways that are, are more right than others. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a, a, um, a range of kind of traditionally accepted interpretations, for example. Um, and uh yeah, and I think you learn a lot when you've been on a lot of audition committees um, on the on the other side uh, of the audition screen, listening and, and what what people are, are looking for. And just the fact that there are the people on the other side of the screen are not all bassoon players. <laughs> you know, they're, they, they, they play all different instruments. And so they're, they're not necessarily listening to for these the same hyper focused things that a, a bassoonist might be listening to. Tell us more about that, about some um lessons that you've learned on the other side of the screen what's important to you when you're listening for a potential colleague ah well yes i've been on a lot of audition committees um well you know you have the things that are necessary necessary but not sufficient i would say um so the things that are necessary is you have to have absolutely accurate you know rhythmic pulse precision and you have to have absolutely well you know I won't say it's perfection, but very, very close to it in terms of pitch. So th those are two things that are just necessary, but they're not sufficient. Um, you know, you, you have to have someone who can, who has something to say musically and an, an audition, an audition, it's this kind of competitive, almost sports-like environment versus playing in the orchestra, which, which is, I think, a different percentage of, you know, sport versus art and in context performance versus, um, one person playing alone in a big hall. And you're, you're trying to imagine, based on what you're hearing in an audition, how that's going to actually work in the orchestra. And, you know, there are things that you simply can't, can't determine. I mean, flexibility is such an important part of the job and being able to respond on a dime if a conductor asks for something different, then you need to be able to do it right then. And you, know, you can kind of, that, happens to some extent in, in a final round, but it's an audition is more like presenting a, a, a recital version of an unaccompanied, uh, of unaccompanied bassoon pieces, <laughs> very short unaccompanied bassoon pieces. And so I think it's a, a different approach than when you are, are playing it in the orchestra. I think if, if someone plays an excerpt and 
they play it in a way where I, as a listener, can almost hear it in context, then, you know, I, I think that there are ways of, of conveying that um, in an audition. Um, but I, I do think that there, you know, it's, it's, it's quite different. I mean, for one thing, just simply the, the amount of reverberation in a hall um, where people are situated for, for many years, we, uh, when I first started the orchestra, we would sit out in the hall for auditions. And I think that you can hear a lot better due to the reverberation effect, we now sit on the stage separated by a screen. And so we can hear quite a bit better. Whereas if one person is playing alone in a big hall, that reverberation can, can distort things, especially at a distance. Um, so uh, again, every, every acoustic space is different, um, but, but that's what we do, what we do here. I remember reading a thread on social media once where uh, oboist actually was lamenting that the Schumann romances appeared on a uh, high school solo ensemble repertoire list. And this person was saying, I don't really want to hear you play music like that until you've lived a bit more and experienced a bit more and learned a bit more. I don't want to hear a 16 year old play Schumann. <laughs> and as you were telling us about, you know, learning about literature and, and writing poetry and thinking about words and cultivating these other parts of yourself, like we discussed, do you feel like that has been a benefit to you as an artist and interpreter, uh, your musicality? Do you feel like that's informed by cultivating other parts of yourself? You know, I think, I think that it, for, for me, at least, I think that it, it has been very helpful because I, whatever I do, I tend to be very hyper-focused and obsessed uh, with it. And uh, we were talking a little bit about, you know, burnout earlier. Uh, for me, simply switching gears briefly to obsess on something else and be in kind of a mental flow in something totally unreal, well, not unrelated, but different from what I'm doing every day in the orchestra, you know, it's it's like... Uh, getting a good night's sleep almost, and then you wake up refreshed. Uh, so for me, I think uh, it keeps me mentally recharged to periodically uh, switch my focus to to a different obsession other than the bassoon. Um, <laughs> you know, and what, is that true for everyone? No, I I don't I don't think so. I think it's always good to try and figure out a way to to strike a work life balance because of just the nature of of what we do and. Um, just, you know, the, the level of obsession, the amount of time that is involved. Um, and so I think people have to have kind of something, uh, you know, for me, it's, it's writing palindromes or designing puzzles or, you know, reading continental philosophy, whatever it is that, you know, sparks your, your interest. I think, I think it's important to, you know, take these take these breaks. It's like, if you're thinking about a problem and you know, what, what is performing, but you're, you're constantly solving these problems um, and, and puzzling things out and figuring out new and better ways to, to make, make something beautiful. Um, uh, but if you're focused on a problem and you just simply stay up all night and you're still focused the next day, you know, it's the, the best thing is to simply stop get some rest, go do something else, go for a walk. And for me, you know, I, I'm mentally going for a walk when I, I spend, you know, two hours writing palindromes or I, mm -hmm. I design some sort of ridiculous puzzle, you know, for my friends or, 
or uh, oh, the best was uh, the time I did a studio class um, and I made it an escape room puzzle. That was fun. <gasps> that sounds like so much fun. <laughs> it was, we had different stations. We had the circular breathing station where, I mean, we had all kinds of fun, fun, different puzzles, logic puzzles. Um, uh, of course, you know, I, I made, I made my students, uh, they had to write a palindrome using the word read, but they couldn't use the word deer in it. So, you know, I mean, there were all kinds of, um, kinds of fun, fun little fun games for them. And um, you must publish that specifically (laughs) for me to use. (laughs) I I thought we should make Lori be with us at one of our live shows. Oh my God. Yes. studio class is fun um this was more of a you know end of the year party it was a particularly big uh large studio that year um and uh that was a lot of fun I had a lot of students who were graduating and we we had a good time (laughs) but I'm I'm known for you know for um have make doing some studio classes that the one that most of my students um remember is the it was the the finger height studio class where I said, I need a big red buzzer. That's what I need. You know, I'm, I'm watching my students, their fingers are just flying off the instrument. And I, I couldn't find a big red buzzer, but I did find a big red buzzer app on my phone. So I did a <laughs> class where I sat, you know, inches away, if you can even imagine that now, um, you know, staring at my students' hands and they just had to play like one line of an etude. And every time their fingers went above a certain height, they got the buzzer. And it was just the most obnoxious sound. And, you know, my, my sweet, kind, you know, students who I adored, I mean, they were just like, ah, ah, that, you know, by, you know, by the end of it. So I was laughing, of course, but um, I found it very, very entertaining. Um, but, uh, you know, the point was, keep your fingers closer to the keys and things will be easier. Oh, like so much fun. <laughs> It's like beep, 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 beep. Pretty much. It's like yeah. between the buzzer sound and the expletives from the student. It's just Yeah, it, it was. Um... <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and, of course, you know, the adversity training studio classes, those are fun. Uh, oh, adversity you know... training. You are giving me so many ideas. <laughs> I know a lot of these studio classes are, are designed for, to, to entertain me, I have to say, but, um, you know. <laughs> Do you make them run around the building three times and then play something? Of course, yeah. Jumping jacks and, um, you know, dropping things, re- recording them as they're playing one thing and then playing it back while they're playing something else. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of fun. This I is brilliant. That. I'm going to use every <laughs> single one of these. If you have one, would you mind sharing a funny or humorous um, story of something you've experienced related to your bassoon life? Funny, 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 funny. Okay, I re- I remember this. This is a pretty funny story. So uh, we had uh, uh, Sue Heineman as a guest at the the University of Utah uh, for the for my my studio, and um, in the recital, Sue and I did the. Um, Michael Doherty bounce. And then uh, we had my, my fabulous second bassoon colleague, Jennifer Rhodes here in the Utah Symphony uh, joined us uh, to do one of the Weissenborn trios. And 
in the in the recital, we're in the green room, and right before we're we're going on for the wise morning, I'm like, okay, so we all know the roadmap here, right? It's so it's here, you know, and then we go back here, blah 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 blah. You want to make sure that there are no mishaps, right? So we go out on the stage, and we start playing. It sounds fabulous, and then suddenly there is this silence, and I am looking, you know, at at, at my my friends here, thinking like, are they not gonna play? <laughs> and then it hits me. Oh, oh, I'm the one who didn't have the roadmap right in my head. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's this, you know, this very lengthy moment of silence and suddenly the realization hits me and of course we, we, we went on, but it was quite funny, particularly because I had made this big deal about, okay, do we all know the roadmap here? You know, and then uh, I, I was the one who, who, who screwed it up. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. So I've gotten a lot of laughs about about that one. That that was pretty funny. Lori, would you regale us with a favorite memory from a past performance? Here's a memorable uh, concert experience. As now that I'm th- thinking about Michael Doherty, uh, I was a student in Aspen years ago, and I remember on the programming, um, I said, "Oh, look, they're programming Dead Elvis." So I, I was studying primarily with Nancy Gorris, uh, and I said, Nancy, who, who's doing Dead Elvis? You, who's doing this? She's like, I have no idea. Do you want to do it? And so, <laughs> and so I ended up playing Dead Elvis, and it was um, the venue was actually a club, which up until the previous year had been kind of this notorious strip club in Aspen. It was no longer that. But anyway, so David Zinman is conducting Dead Elvis, in this former strip club. And then one of the other bassoon, bassoon students is controlling the lights. And I, I, I didn't have, you know, a, a white rhinestone jumpsuit, but I did find a green suede, you know, vintage uh, jumpsuit creation that was just beautiful from, from a thrift store there. Elvis inspired. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I made something to make the sideburns and, you know, and um, that was a memorable experience for me. Um, I just remember thinking, well, this is, this is very surreal. What is your advice for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? My advice for someone who wants to, you know, play the bassoon uh, professionally is one to know just how competitive the field is and that they'll have to make a lot of sacrifices. Um, more than likely uh, to to have that career. Uh, generally speaking, I think, uh, you know, you, you always hear the advice from people that um, if there's something else that you would like to do other than music, you should probably do that. But if what you really, really want to do is music, then okay, go for that. But um, I think it's difficult for young players to quite, to understand what the reality of the career field, this field is like. And I, I don't, I don't know that you can really explain that to someone. I think it's something everyone has to kind of learn on their own. It's odd to explain even to, to professionals in other careers, you know, what it's like. I remember taking an audition years ago and some of my bassoon friends and I, we were in a, sharing a cab together, talking to the driver. The driver's like, oh, so they flew you out here for this, you know, this interview. We're like, no, no, no. We, we, we fly our, ourselves out here and, and like, so that they don't put you up or, you know, or they don't pay for your play ticket. And, like, and they're like, well, how long is this interview process? And like, well, the first round, 
might last five minutes. It sounds ridiculous when you say it. Yeah, it, it, it does. It does. And it's like, so you just flew across the entire country to play for five minutes. And I think that's a really difficult thing to, to grasp um, at a young age. And, you know, probably not knowing how <laughs> difficult it is, is maybe an advantage <laughs> to some degree. <laughs> what if we um, close out with fun projects you have coming up? Well, one thing that's interesting, uh, Utah Symphony is one of the, the orchestras that is currently working right now. We actually were performing live concerts from September through the end of November. And uh, our cultural venues are now closed for live audiences. But uh, in the month of December, we've been still recording for, for broadcast and streaming purposes. And that looks like that will be the case uh, for the next couple of months as well. But so it's um, quite an experience to to perform under these conditions and with a, you know, a very carefully crafted and stringent safety, safety plan. Um, uh, I was actually on our safety task force uh, this summer trying to help devise something that would allow us to return to work um, in some sort of capacity. So um, yeah, I've actually been, been playing quite, quite a lot <laughs> uh, lately. And uh, it's, everything keeps changing. Uh, so I, I, I don't quite know what's coming up in the next couple of months as it may change <laughs> on a daily basis, but you know, it's all about being flexible right now. And um, hopefully it'll, there'll be a return to near normality next season um, is my hope. But at the same time, I think the pandemic has also um, opened up some doors for us to explore new things and to reevaluate things that are working and things that are not working. And, um, to, to play a new repertoire, for, for example, we've been doing uh, chamber repertoire, both chamber orchestra and uh, chamber music. And so getting to explore this repertoire that in a, in a large symphony is not done so frequently, I think is, that has been uh, really fun to, to play this repertoire that um, I simply don't have the opportunity to play quite as, as frequently. And then you, you're also able to reach audiences outside of the state, outside, you know, um, through, through the broadcast medium. So, you know, I think that there are some, some positive things that can come out of it that would, one may want to uh, implement uh, in the long term in terms of reaching, reaching uh, people in different ways and going out into the community, uh, you know, in, in, in a different way uh, than what is kind of the, the standard model. Lori, thank you so much for joining us <laughs> on Double Read Dish. It was such a joy to talk to you. And we really appreciate your generosity in spending your precious time with us. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Okay, we hope you enjoyed that interview. <laughs> Follow us on social media, rate and review. I'm tired. We'll be on the next episode. <laughs> Our next episode, we welcome the lovely, the wonderful Jaron Atherholt, Assistant Professor of Oboe at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Jackie, it is definitely time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads. <laughs> wah, wah.